since it's Easter, before we start talking about ethics of all things, I want to read you a heartwarming Easter story. Everybody say, ah. I know, it's going to be precious. And so I, just, I find these things on the internet sometimes, and I'm like, oh, that's so precious. You just have to read it. Little Philip, born with Down syndrome, attended the third grade Sunday school class with every other several eighth, eight-year-old boys and girls. Typical of that age, the children did not really accept Philip with his differences. But because of creative teacher, they began to care about Philip and accept him as part of the group, though not fully. The Sunday after Easter, the teacher bought legs pantyhose containers, the kind that looked like large eggs. Each received one. The children were, were told to go outside on a lovely spring day and find symbols of new life and put them in the egg-like container. We should do that today, huh? <laughs> what the heck? Back in the classroom, they would share their new life symbols, opening the containers one by one in surprise fashion. After running about the church property in wild confusion, the students returned to the classroom and placed their containers on the table. Surrounded by the children, the teacher began to open them one by one. After each one, whether a flower or a butterfly or a leaf, the class would ooh and ah. Then one was opened, revealing nothing inside. The children ex exclaimed, That's stupid. That's not fair. Somebody didn't do their assignment. Philip spoke up. That's mine. Philip, you don't ever do things right, one student retorted. There's nothing in there. I did so do it, Philip insisted. I did do it. It's empty. The tomb is empty. Silence followed. From then on, Philip became a full member of the class. Isn't that precious? <laughs> All right, let me pray. Jesus, we just welcome you here on this Easter morning, on this Easter Sunday, God. We celebrate the fact that you did not die. You did not just remain in the tomb, but you arose from the dead. Your dead body became alive through the power of yourself, through the power of God. And we're just so grateful for that, God. Even though it's snowing outside, we remember you. We remember you and the tomb and that you arose from that tomb. And we're just so grateful for the gift of life. We thank you, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. I was thinking about the other day, if, if the, um, the story of Jesus ended with him dying and, and being set in the tomb, and then, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be blasphemous, I'm just saying, what if that was the story, that he just died in the tomb, and then spiritually, we, th we, we decided, well, spiritually, Jesus is alive in us, and he's alive today. Isn't that cool? And then the thorn would end, you know, on a, a kind of a sad note that Jesus died in the tomb, and he's in the tomb, and it's all, you know, it's kind of a somber, and we'd all leave the thorn somber, right? But that's not how the story went. The story went that he arose alive from the grave. And then on the thorn, he ascended. Did you guys like that scene? <laughs> I thought it was so cool. I was so excited. Um, I just, I think it's so cool. And so this morning, we are talking about ethics because we're talking about ethics all this month of April. Specifically, we're talking about valuing life at its beginning and then valuing life at its end. What better Sunday school topic on Easter morning than life, right? I agree, too. All right. So ethics, uh, if, you're, if you're taking notes, uh, let's do a quick review. I just want to give you two main points for the big picture, two main points. The first main point that we want to talk about as ethics is that we in here are doing an in-house discussion. I'm a Christian. I'm biased. I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe the Bible is true, and that's my standpoint. 
And I'm talking to you as if all of you believe in the Bible and think that Jesus is Lord. If you don't believe those things, then you're a visitor with us, and we welcome you in here. But this is kind of an in-house ethics discussion. And so we're talking from me as a Christian to you as a Christian is how this is going to go. So the two main points that we talked about last time, the first one is that ethics, we believe in ethics as a moral law. Ethics as a moral law. Because we believe that God is a moral lawgiver. And so in contrast, uh, we would not say that we just believe that in, in different situations we can make up our own ethics. And a lot of people are situational ethics kind of people. They would say, well, what's the situation? There, there's right and wrong in the situation depending upon what the situation is. So the first point is that we have a moral law and a moral law giver. Mr. Isaiah Wood, I see your hand. Yes, sir. The defining between morals and ethics. Um, I think so. I mean, you could get really down to the nitty-gritty and maybe find some differences, but in here, as I'm talking, I'm kind of meaning the same thing. Ethics, morals, I know there's probably differences, but in the I'm not smart enough. <laughs> so that, the first point is, is that we believe in a moral law giver and a moral law. The second main thing that I want, if, if you only get two things out of this entire month as we talk about ethics, is that number two, um, you can't be like a Pharisee and demand, um, demand laws upon people. And we watched, remember last week we watched Jesus talking to the Pharisees, um, the book of Matthew, word for word. And Jesus just gets so mad at the Pharisees because they have this law inside of them and they make people follow the law and they're not nice about it. They're not compassion, compassionate. They're not kind. And so last week we talked about specifically abortion and how we, we as Christians hold to the idea that that little, that little baby inside a mother, that little fetus or embryo, whatever you want to call it, zygote even is another word for when, a, when an egg and a sperm meet together and then they form a little embryo. You guys know health class, right? You okay with me? So this little embryo inside the mother has potential to be just like one of us, a real, live, human being, baby that's born. And so as Christians, we have to say, that's, that's life. And so we need to protect, we need to value that life. But at the same time, that's the moral idea, that's the moral law that we as Christians hold. At the same time, we shouldn't be the people that, you know, for goodness sakes, blow up abortion clinics. Or we shouldn't be people standing on the street screaming at a mother considering um, abortion, saying, you're a baby killer. That's just not compassionate. That's just not right of us to do. And so to have an ethical law, a moral law, point one, but point two, to be nice about it, to not be like the Pharisees. Jesus makes the phrase that they bind up big packages of burdens and put them on people's shoulders, and then they don't help people carry them. And so we don't want to be like that. So those are the two main points of ethics. And so I found this story, which I think is kind of cool. It's about abortion, and then we'll jump into stem cell research, which is a little bit different of an ethical dilemma, possibly. A professor in a world-acclaimed medical school once posed this medical situation and ethical problem to his students. Here's the family history. The father has syphilis, the mother has TB, that means tuberculosis. 
they already have four children. The first is blind, the second is di- is, had died, the third is deaf, the fourth has TB. Now the mother is pregnant again. The parents come to you for advice. They are willing to have an abortion. If you decide they should, what should you say? The students gave various individual opinions, and then the professor asked them to break into small groups for consultation. All the groups came back to the report that they would recommend abortion. And then the professor says, congratulations, you just took the life of Beethoven. Wow. That's a good one. All right. Uh, Stem cell research. Are you ready to learn a little bit about stem cell research? Because it's a weird topic, isn't it? It's a different problem than abortion in this. And I think uh, abortion has to do with potentially a crisis pregnancy, a pregnancy that's, that's maybe not wanted or in a situation that the pregnancy arises where the mother is just confused and uh, not sure what to do. They're thinking about abortion. Uh, stem cell research has to do with taking those embryos, those fetuses, the zygotes, the blastocysts, whatever you want to call it, the little uh, potential human life, and then doing research on that uh, little embryo, usually almost always killing it, and to, to do some sort of research on that embryo. And it's a different situation than abortion because it's kind of for the betterment of human society, right? I mean, doing research to, for the potential you know, cures for diseases or something like that. It's, it's, to me, it's a bigger, um, you have to think about it a little more, don't you think? I think so. I have to think about it a little bit more. And so there's two types of stem cell research, and I want to explain to you explain them to you so you're not confused. Because I was sitting in my office, and we were all talking about stem cell research a couple weeks ago, and, and a guy was in there, and he's saying, yeah, I had a, a Christian friend that got into a snowboarding accident, and he, he hurt his back, and then he, he couldn't walk. He was paralyzed. He could barely stand. And, um, and so his parents are doctors, and they heard about this uh, stem cell research thing going on in China, this experimental thing. So they flew the Christian kid to, uh, to China and had stem cell research stuff, uh, like adult stem cell research placed in his back so that they could regrow the spinal cord. That's the best I could explain it scientifically because I'm not... <laughs> I'm not a scientist. I'm a theologian, I guess. And so, and so I was sitting there thinking, wow, is that really what uh, stem cell research is all about? Like that kid, kid couldn't be able to walk if it wasn't for stem cell research. No, that's, it's a different thing. There's, there's something called embryonic stem cell research, and there's something called adult stem cell research. And what the Christian kid with the broken tailbone um, that got injured snowboarding, he's able to walk because of adult stem cell research. There's a big difference. Adult stem cell research is like me donating part of my spinal cord or in the bone marrow, or there's other certain types of cells in my body that you could take out and then they'll regrow, and then you could kind of grow a little baby spinal cord from my spinal cord is how I understand it. <laughs> and then and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like I, if, you, if one of you, uh, like my mother or my brother, someone that's related to me has the same blood type as me, needs a kidney, is it wrong for me to give them my kidney? No, by no means. What if it was uh, my lung or something, and it was a very uh, tricky procedure, a very risky procedure to take out my lung to give it to someone that had a similar blood type as me? Is that wrong? No, that's, I mean, that's, wow, like, wow, somebody gave their lung to somebody else. That's, you know, giving your life for somebody else. That's totally cool. That's awesome. 
And so adult stem cell research is just like that, donating some part of your cell, your bone marrow, your uh, spinal cord, to, so that other little cells can be made. That's adult stem cell research. There's another type of stem cell research that's called embryonic stem cell research. And that's the hot topic. That's the issue that Christians are saying, is this really the right thing to do? Because what that does is it takes the little embryo, you know, when the, when the sperm and the egg, they come together when a man and a woman love each other very much. <laughs> and then that, the, uh, the embryo, that blastocyst, um, is then the thing that is being researched upon and because it has the potential for all the different types of cells. And so scientists are trying to, thinking that they could take that and then form like a kidney out of a little embryo or something cool like that. So they're doing research on that kind of thing. And it seems like stem cell research has been happening for the last decade or so with the idea that there's potential for healings, for potential for medical research. But as Christians, we have to say that <clears throat> because that's a life and because that little life uh, has the potential to be a human, that we can't just kill it. because We can't just experiment on it and say, oh, it's, it's for the potential that we could um, possibly you know, cure cancer or something like that. I mean, wow. I mean, if we could really cure cancer from, a, from an embryonic stem cell research, just think, wow. But is that really worth the life of, uh, of an embryo, uh, thousands of embryos being um, killed or destroyed for that research? As Christians, we have to say, no. Our God's the God that you know, goes after the lost sheep, goes after the lost person, that one life has importance, one life has a gift. And so if you're writing notes, there's three points, three argument points on stem cell research. The first one is that the embryos are lives. Number two, let, let's not stop researching. I mean, I, I kind of joke around that I don't know anything about science, but my undergrad was in biology. <laughs> so, so I should probably know something about science. Um, and I, I like science. I love science. I love the fact that we put a man on the moon, not just because we can, but because, I mean, we're humans. Let's, let's conquer the world. Let's go out and, and do things, do research and make things happen and make our lives better. I think that's really cool. But number two is let's explore alternative methods, alternative options other than taking the life of a potential human being, an embryo. And number three, there is an overstatement of the research potential. To date, no medical breakthroughs, to date, no medical breakthroughs have been made from embryonic stem cell research. And a scientist might say, and I would agree, that there is potential there. I mean, let's land a man on the moon because, wow, because we can. And there's going to be other research that comes out of that that potentially makes our lives better from doing um, research on the human body. Let's do that. But to date, in the last decade, there has been no medical breakthroughs um, st coming from stem cell research. And then recently, I found this um, uh, recently, researchers at Advanced Cell Technology in Massachusetts succeeded in obtaining stem cells from a mouse embryo without killing them. It's called the Lanza Technique. If this technique is reliable and improved, it would alleviate any ethical problem related to embryonic stem cell research, right? Because it's not killing the human being. We're just like extracting something from it, and then, and then it, can, it can still continue to live or whatever. 
So that is the issue <laughs> of stem cell research. Did I kind of explain that well for you? Hopefully I did, because it's an issue that Christians are sometimes really excited about, but they don't know too much about. And so it's like all this passion without any knowledge. And so hopefully that, that may have cleared up some things in your eyes. But, but it's the same sort of issue as abortion, because it has to do with valuing the life of a potential human being and looking at that embryo and saying, it has everything it needs right there. It's going to be a human life. Let's not experiment on that human life. All right. Euthanasia. Are you ready to dive into this issue? Let's do it. Are you, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. Bring it on. I want to draw, I'm going to draw for you a chart up here to help us understand it. Does anyone know what euthanasia means? Like the Greek words? Do you know what it means? Do you know what it means? Yes, it, it really means good death. Uh, and so you're giving, by doing euthanasia, you're giving someone a good death. And um, let me just read this. Euthanasia, in case you haven't heard of the term before, euthanasia takes the life at the end. It usually involves a person's consent. It may even be requested earnestly that the person, I, I want to die or I want to commit suicide with your help. It involves a decision to end human life. The, deci the, the decision often marks a failure of imagination, a failure of mercy, and a failure to, f to value life adequately due to the temptations presented in the context of suffering and sorrow. And I really think, I really believe that it's not, you know, if you go, go back to the Adam and Eve maybe, that God's good, perfect, ultimate will was for us not to die, for us to live in the garden for us to be totally naked. <laughs> for us to walk with God and talk with God in the cool of the garden and to have a, a, a pure relationship with our God and for us not to have sin. Do you know that there was not going to be any death in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, life is totally different. Death is just a part of life now because from a biblical sense, from, from a truth standpoint, we messed that up. We told God, I want to eat of this fruit, and I want to sin against you. And then God, God said, you know, okay, here enters into the world death and sin and sorrow and all these bad things. And so if you were to come up to me and say, do you think it's God's will for me to be sick and you have the cold? I would say, no, that's not God's will because God's will wants you to be well. God's ultimate will was for you to be walking naked in the garden. And so God's will is not for you to be sick. I think sickness, death, ultimately are the result of sin originally in the Bible. And that's pretty clear that there was no sickness or death um, before sin entered into the world. And so, um, and so I, I say all that just to preface this chart thing. I'm going to move my chair so you can see this chart. If you want to write this chart down, I think it's very helpful because we're looking at a big issue like euthanasia and we're trying to qualify different things. And so here we go. I'm going to write with blue so hopefully you can see it. Uh, it's going to have six different, uh, this is the chart, six different things. Let's see, one, two, three, and then one down the middle. Like this is what the chart's going to look like. And the main, the main uh, there's two types of euthanasia. One we would say is very wrong. And the other we would say, 
well, maybe that's just letting the person die. And so it's the difference between act, whoops, active and passive. <laughs> Sweet. It's always fun. It's always embarrasses the person that it happens to. It's always just funny. Um, active, not to embarrass you more. Sorry, Isaiah. <laughs> Keep going. Active versus passive euthanasia. And I, I, I made this line, this blue line, really thick and dark because it does, in a lot of ways, present the difference between an action that is okay, passive, and an active that is totally wrong, actively killing someone. Totally wrong. And this line, because of science, because of uh, you know keeping someone alive, and the, like the e EGG, e EGG, what does this stand for? ECG, uh, just the brain waves and the heart monitors and all this scientific medical stuff. This line is becoming possibly thinner and grayer than it's ever been. But I think if we could keep these two differences in our mind between passive and active euthanasia it'll help us a lot. Active euthanasia is actively killing someone. Actively, usually it's giving someone an ejection of some chemical that kills them. Passive euthanasia would be letting that person die. And so some people talk about it as pulling the plug or something like that, allowing the person to die. They're going to die anyways. And so let's talk about it. There's going to be three different types. The first one is voluntary. Voluntary. So this voluntary means... Did I spell that wrong? Okay. Well, voluntary means that you, as the person that's going to die, wants to die. And so active, active voluntary euthanasia would be me if, for instance, I, uh, I was really depressed and I had cancer and I knew I was going to die and I knew that life ahead of me looked very grim, that I was just, you know, there's going to be a, a year or two of suffering and, and, going th and battling cancer I could go to a doctor um, and say, uh, it's, it's the term called physician-assisted suicide. I could go to him and say, would you just end my, help me end my misery? I know that my, li my life for these next two years is, is going to be horrible, and there's not a very good chance of me living through this. Would you help me commit suicide? And the doctor would give you a, a lethal injection of some, some chemical. And so I would say that active voluntary euthanasia is suicide. Suicide. And on the case of the doctor, the doctor injecting you, the doctor is really committing murder in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, you want it, so it's kind of murder. I'll put a question mark. Murder, question mark. But either way you look at it, it's, it's not good. It's not valuing your life. It's not valuing, saying that, yeah, anyone can just commit suicide with the help of a doctor. It's not valuing life at the end. And so as Christians, we would say, that's, that's wrong. Why, you know, let's... God gave you the gift of life, and just because you're going to go through suffering and sorrow, you know, that's, that's just the way life is. That's just the way things have to happen. It's not, it's not right to end your life based upon that you're scared that you're going to have to suffer. Right? Don't you agree with me as, as Christians? That active voluntary euthanasia is wrong. And then there's, there's the, there's the non-voluntary non and involuntary. And the difference between non-voluntary and involuntary is the difference between uh, non, you're not sure what they want. So I'll put a question mark here. You're not sure 
what the person wants. Let's say they don't have a living will and they're, they're in a coma. They may or may not wake up. They may or may not get better. Um, you're not sure. They never wrote a will saying, if I'm ever in a situation where I might die, then go ahead and kill me. Um, I guess I don't know if you can even put that in your will. That you, you never told somebody <laughs> that. Um, that's non-voluntary. Involuntary is, is, is someone saying, I don't want to die. I, even if I'm in a coma, even if things are looking really bad, I want to be kept alive as long as I possibly can. And so the difference is you're not sure what they want. Involuntary, don't kill me. Active involuntary euthanasia could be like the Nazis. What they did with, um, you know that they killed how many millions of Jews? Six? I've heard number, I've heard seven. Um, that, that they've killed so many Jews. Along with the Jews were other, you know, horribly said, but horrible problem people in the society. And they, so they didn't just kill Jews. They killed elderly. They killed physically handicapped people. They killed mentally handicapped people. Anybody that really couldn't be valued in the society, they killed. Involuntary, they would put them in a gas chamber in a lot of cases, and just horribly. It was an act of killing, and they didn't want it. It was, it was, I mean, it's, it's murder, right? If you're just plain and simple. I'm not going to put a question mark. I'm going to put an exclamation mark. It's murder. Non-voluntary is still, I would say, murder. You're not sure what the person wants, but you're actively killing them. You're actively injecting them with something or uh, wh- however your method, I don't want to get too graphic, whatever your method of killing them, it's still actively killing them. And so it's murder. You're not sure what they want, but you kill them anyways. They're, they're in a coma. You're not sure. They may wake up. They might not wake up. But you just say, let's just end this. It's too, it's too big of a deal. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to murder them. I'm going to say, let's kill them. And so you go in and put a pillow over their face and kill them. Is that murder? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely so. Passive euthanasia is a little bit different. And this is where things may or may not get a little confusing. I think they get a little harder or a little more confusing to me. And in, I mean, think about it. In biblical times, was there heart respirators and food tubes and uh, machines to keep your heart beating and stuff like that? Not that I know of. We haven't found any evidence <laughs> for that. I mean, we're still, look, we're still doing archaeology, but I don't think there, there, there was that kind of thing around. And so passive euthanasia, I remember being in Pakistan it was actually two years ago on Easter Day. How cool is that? I was in Pakistan on a mission trip with a couple other guys, and um, there was this. We went to this village, and in the village was a lot of Christians, and so we had an Easter service. And then after the Easter service, we went and prayed for this old man that couldn't get up, couldn't walk, was was in a bed, really old, probably like in his 70s or 80s. And in that culture, that's really old, by the way. And he he couldn't get up. It's just extremely skinny. And we were talking to his, his son, and his son was in his 30s or something like that. We were talking to him, and he said, yeah, my, my father, he's not going to live a couple more weeks. You know, we'll be really impressed if he lives a month, maybe. He's not doing very well. And so he we went over, and we prayed for him, and um, just asked God to heal him. We, t- we talked to him a little bit about salvation, but it, you couldn't really tell if he really understood or not. And that's just how, that's kind of how you die in that culture, in the, in the biblical times. And it's very biblical times if you've ever been to a third world country like that. Um, no, no hospitals around that he could have went to. It's out in the middle of nowhere in the uh, Pakistan desert. And so that's just passively 
letting that man die. And so taking care of him, caring for him, um, but just allowing him to die. That's just the natural, everybody in here, we're all going to die, right? And so I think in some ways, keeping someone alive in in a crazy form, um, like like say your your brain is dead, you have your your brain is dead, your heart's not beating on its own, a machine is keeping your heart beating, uh, a machine is is injecting you with chemicals that keep your body alive with the foods and the sugar and all that kind of stuff. Um, just merely keeping your body alive isn't that great of a situation. Right? I mean, you're, you're potentially just dead, and a machine is keeping you alive. And it's only by modern technology that that is even thinkable. But it's, it's possible to keep somebody alive potentially a long time. And alive, I put in quotation marks, because if there's no brain waves, there's, they can't, their heart doesn't beat on its own, a machine is keeping their heart from beating, then I would say that's just, just, just letting the person die. It's okay to just let someone die like that, that we should all have the right to refuse unwanted medical care at the end of our life. If there's no EEG, uh, respirator, uh, just, just saying, no, I want to just go home and, and die on my own. I think that's an okay decision, don't you? Just saying, yeah, I mean, I could be kept alive potentially for a really long time. Um, you know, af- even after I die, my body could still be kind of alive. But it's okay to let someone die. And I, I read a quote, uh, let me read this quote. Nothing is involved with choosing death. The medical efforts shift from a cure to a care. And there may be a sad unwillingness to face the reality of the human condition. It may even be an idolatry of human life. Just trying, saying, oh, let's keep this this person, or if I had in my will, keep me alive no matter what. Even if I don't have a brainwave or a heartbeat, just get machines in there to start working on my body and, and miraculously medically keep my body alive. It's okay to, to let someone die. And so next to passive, I'm going to put letting die. When there's, no, when there's no chance of recovery and the person says, yeah, I just want to go home. I just want to die on my own. I don't want to be hooked up to machines and live for potentially a couple more months. I just, it's okay for me to just die. And so uh, what, I think I had a word for this on the chart. Yeah, letting die. <laughs> Or pulling the plug. I think in a lot of cases, it's just okay to do. You're not actively killing the person. You're just saying there is no hope for them. Their, their brainwave might already be dead. Um, they are not. There's no way um, that, that they're going to stay alive. You know, think about like grandma that's 80 years old. You know, just let, it's okay to let grandma pass away, to pull the plug and just let the death process end life. It's, it's, it's okay. That's pulling the plug. It's not giving someone an ejection of lethal dose to kill them. It's just letting them die. And so non-voluntary, uh, I'm going to put letting die, maybe just a question mark for letting die. You're not sure what they want, but on, on their behalf as a family member, maybe you just make the choice for them. Maybe they never told you anything. Maybe they, they got injured in a car accident. They have no brain wave. That they're without a machine hooked up to their heart or food tube, et cetera, et cetera, they would just die. And so I think that might be okay as well. And then this one, involuntary, um, this is, these two, I guess, are kind of confusing. This one just says, yeah, I want to die. I want to go home and die. Perfectly, perfectly an ethical thing to do. 
These two are, are when you're making a decision for someone else and someone doesn't want to die. And they, have, they tell you that, yeah, I want to be kept alive as long as I possibly can. And then as a family member, maybe they're alive a really long time. Maybe they were just saying that, you know, if I say, yeah, I want to be kept alive for as long as I can. And you guys all, you know, laugh like you usually do. <laughs> just kidding. And then, and then something happens, something horrible happens to me, and I'm in a coma, and I have no brain waves, and there's no chance of me ever recovering from that. And, and all you remember hearing is me saying, yeah, I want to live as long as I possibly can. I want to live till I'm 100 or something like that, something silly. And, and that's all you remember, and so you want to keep them alive, but then it becomes years and years of, of, of food tubes and, and no chance of recovery. I think, I don't know, it's a harder decision, but I think it's still okay to just let someone die. What do you guys think? I, I would say that, that, that these two, that this line, I'm going to make another line, should be a really thick line of, between active and passive, between actively killing, murdering someone, and passively just letting someone die. And it should be a really thick line. And it is up here on this chart, but in real life, in real life situations, this line might be really skinny. It might be a gray line between, well, what is actually killing them? What is actually letting them die? And so, but I give you that chart just so you can reference that if you ever have to make this kind of decision or you're ever talking to someone that has to make a big decision like this. All right. The death penalty. This is a good one. Turn to your neighbor and say, here we go. The death penalty. The death penalty, um, you realize, is, is if someone commits a really horrible crime, like a murder, um, and they do it really brutally, that in some states they could be sentenced to death. Not just life in prison, not just a really long time in prison, but the state can um, sentence them to death. And we have Christians on both sides of the issue saying, yes, I'm in favor of the death penalty, or other Christians saying, no, I'm not in favor of the death penalty. And I'm sure if we had, should we raise hands? Would that be fun? No. You want to do it? All right, all right, all right, we'll do it. How, and, and you realize that this is, before I, I have people raise their hands, and there's maybe a lot of you that don't know that are, that are on the fence maybe, um, it's not... Listen to this. It's not a foundational issue. Foundational issues in the Christian message are that Jesus is Lord, that you go to heaven or hell based upon your faith in Jesus Christ, that the Bible is true, that the Bible is a great book. Those are foundational issues. The death penalty, there's Christians on both sides of it. And even this, I mean, if this is, isn't just the cap of all caps, focus on the family doesn't have official position on the death penalty. I know. So if focus on the family doesn't have an official position, then, you know, how can, a, how can we ever make a decision on our own? <laughs> I'm just I really like focus on the family, so don't think bad of it. Um, okay, so you want to do the vote. How many of you don't know whether you, you like the death penalty or not? Oh, quite a few of you. Okay, how many of you do not like the death penalty? Okay, how many of you like the death penalty? I mean, no, you don't like it. You're in favor. I think, I think the in favor of the people win. All right, then. That's, that's our answer. Let's go. Now, we have, we have about 10 minutes, so I want, to talk about, um, I want to talk about two things. First of all, the idea that in your notes it says justified. Um, I'm going to talk about how the death penalty is justified. And then I'm going to talk about 
is it the best solution, question mark. And I'm kind of, I, I'm probably on the fence, but I, I would lean more towards the side of it being maybe not the best solution. Everybody say, ooh. ooh the, and you realize that we can, talk, we can kind of debate this issue and talk nicely to each other and, and go back and forth because it's not a foundational issue, right? So don't get all crazy on me and leave and, and get all mad and storm out. Uh, it's not a foundational issue. If it was, and I was, I was saying, oh, yeah, Buddha's just as good as Jesus, I give you permission to walk up and, make a, and to run away and to make a big scene. But the, uh, it's a, not a foundational issue. Let's read some verses, shall we? Pull out your Bibles. Uh, we're going to turn to Genesis 9.5. These are going to be some verses that say that the death penalty is, in fact, uh, justified. That the death penalty is in the Bible. Genesis 9.5 talks about um, blood for blood and the kind of the idea of life for life, although it's not said just like that. It says, And for your life blood, I will surely demand an account. This is God talking. I will demand an accounting from every animal, from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. And then verse 6 of Genesis 9 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed for the image of of God, uh, for in, in the image of God has God made man. Because we, as, as humans, humans, male and female, it says in the Bible, God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. That we are both, we are all male and female in the image of God. And so if you kill a human being, in the Old Testament, Genesis 9-5 says, <clears throat> life is required for the life that you took. Let's look at uh, another set of verses. Leviticus 20. Did you know that the, in the Old Testament, um, it's called the Torah, uh, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, lots of the words are all about the different rules of what you're supposed to do if you, you know, you're, you're not supposed to eat pig or not supposed to eat shrimps or lobsters or anything that's good, really. You're just not supposed to eat it. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, there's all these rules about what, I mean, think about it. We don't live in a culture that's, um, I mean, it's, we, we say that the Old Testament is good, but the New Testament has come, that we don't have to obey all the rules of the Old Testament for, for salvation. We don't have to, for instance, take a bull or, or a goat to the altar and, and kill it on, a, on account of our sins. We say Jesus was the ultimate lamb, and we talk about Jesus as the lamb of God. And so in the Old Testament, there, the first five books of the Bible, there's lots and lots of rules about what you're supposed to do if this or that happens. And Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, Consecrate yourselves as holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. If, uh, if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, Yikes. He has cursed his father or mother, and his blood will be on his own head. I don't, I don't know technically what, I mean, I guess a little kid, I mean, imagine five years old, he's like, I don't like you, Mommy. And then they go out and stone the kid. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know I don't know how they interpreted that particular verse, but um, <clears throat> that's, that's what it says to do. Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So the sin of adultery, you must be put to death. If you have your own Bible, circle that verse, or just remember that verse, because we're going to go back to that verse 
and talk about it a little more. Just know that the, the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament is death. And then verse 11, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he's dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. And then like the next four or five verses have to do with sexual sins. If you commit a sexual sin, you, you should be put to death in the Old Testament. Verse 27 of, of Leviticus 20, skip all the way down. If a man or a woman who is a medium or spiritualist among you, they must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their bodies will be on, their blood will be on their own heads. So if someone says, in the Old Testament, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I read your palm? What do you do to them? Those are the rules in the Old Testament. Leviticus 24, 16. We'll go back to this one as well. So remember this one. Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him to death, whether an alien or native-born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. That's Leviticus 24, 16, if you're reading that along with me. So remember that one. So those verses all to say that the death penalty, and, and uh, we, we voted in here that, that the death penalty is okay, <laughs> that there was probably uh, maybe not a strong majority, but a lot of you that said the death penalty, you're in favor of the death penalty. In heinous crimes, the death penalty is, is justified. And I think from the Bible, from the Old Testament, you could look and say, yes, the death penalty is justified. And, and let I remind you again that this is not a foundational issue to the cross of Jesus Christ or to our belief as Christians. We can talk about it and maybe debate it in nice ways with grace and with mercy and not ripping each other's heads off, right? Okay, so it's justified. It's totally, I just gave you proofs for, um, to be in favor of the death penalty. My particular opinion, I just want you to hear me out for a couple of minutes, um, is, is that it might not be the best solution in light of what Jesus taught. And if you turn to John 8, the, I told you to memorize, or not memorize, but just keep in mind the verse about um, committing adultery and then having to be killed. In John chapter 8, the Gospel of John, we're going to specifically look at like verse 6. This is the, the story of when the adulterous woman is, that says that she was caught in the very act. I mean, that's a horrible picture. But they bring her, Pharisees bring her, and Pharisees are the people that look at the Old Testament, look at the first five books, and say, here's all the laws and rules that go along with that. And they brought her to Jesus and said, here's a woman caught in adultery. The, the, the Bible says to kill her. The Old Testament says to kill this woman. What do you say? Are they justified in, in, in saying that she needs to be killed? Yes, I think so. Because in the Old Testament, it said to kill an adulterer. But Jesus says, Jesus bends down and, and starts to write on the ground with his finger. Verse 7 says, and kept, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to, to throw a stone at her. You remember that passage in John 8? Where Jesus, where they're totally justified in saying, This woman deserves death. She's committed adultery. We've caught her in the very act, it says. And then Jesus says, Let's have grace in this situation. Uh, he, he knew what the Old Testament said. He knew what the laws of God were. But he said, let's have grace in this situation. Kind of cool, don't you think? And then, I mean, it's a, it's a the story you probably saw if you saw the thorn. that They, they redo that exact scene. And it's, it's a moment of grace. And then the woman becomes a follower of Jesus and lives literally to tell about what Jesus did. Um, Jesus talks about death a little bit and the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read for you um, 
just a short little excerpt. Matthew 5.38 starts off with saying, You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Where, where's that written, by the way? In the Old Testament. Yeah, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him and give him your left cheek as well. And then skipping down to verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm not sure where, um, where that comes from. It must have been just a, a saying of the day. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he talks about just having grace. The Beatitudes are all about grace and, and mercy. And Jesus saying, there was an old way, but here's a new way. The new way is filled with more mercy and more grace. And I was watching um, CNN a, a, maybe, a, maybe a month ago almost now. And on the TV, it was like the very end of this trial. And, the, and if I told you the crimes that the man committed, it would ruin your day. But just horrible, murderous, you know, just horrible crimes, one after another. He was on trial, and the trial, um, the very end of the trial was on CNN where they, where they said, this man is now um, sentenced to the death penalty. And a few people were around me watching it, and they were all like, yes, at the death penalty, yes. And, I, and because I knew the, the sins that the man committed, and they were all listed, and in my heart was, was just, yes, he deserves that. And then after, I just thought, man, I, just a check in my spirit that I was celebrating this man's death. And maybe his death was justified. Maybe the, the crimes that he did is justified. But in the Old Testament, it's justified. But just the idea that I was celebrating this man's death and that, and that, that, that we were I, just joking about it a little bit. Yes, he deserves to die and kind of celebrating that. I don't think that's the attitude that Jesus would have had. And maybe there is that barrier between what's real and what's on TV. And, you know, you could laugh at things that are on TV and it's not as real as, it's, as it is right in front of you. That's part of it. But I just think, man, there was, there was a check in my spirit that I was convicted that I was actually celebrating his death. Let me read for you this quote. The evidence seems clear that the death penalty has a paradoxical, imitative effect on other potential murderers. It sets an official government example that killing someone is a proper way to resolve feelings of resentment for the slake of the desire for revenge. This ends up cheapening the value of human life and actually causing a boomerang effect that increases the murder rate. And you know, you know that Jesus was sentenced to, to the death penalty. We celebrated that on Good Friday, that he died for our sins. And I told you to memorize the, just keep in mind, the Leviticus 24.10 passage that says, He who blasphemies, blasphemes the name of God, you're to stone him, you're to kill him, right? You remember that verse that we just talked about? That's the verse that the Pharisees hold against Jesus because Jesus says, I and the Father am one. He, Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And the Pharisees took the rule, they took the Old Testament law and said, well, here's what, here's what it says about people that talk like you. We need to kill you. But the thing about Jesus is that for once, you know, once in history, that was actually God saying that he was God. One of us saying, I am God. How cool is that? But the Pharisees did what they kind of had to do in following the law, following the letter of the law, and they killed him. They brought him to the Roman Empire and said, 
we need to get rid of this man. He's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be God. We need to get rid of him. And so on this Easter Sunday, I think we could just celebrate life. And whether you're for or against the death penalty, I hope to not rattle you up too much or, or just to get you mad because it's an issue that is not foundational. You can have either side of the issue. But as we celebrate Easter and celebrate life, that Jesus didn't die and stay in the tomb, I think that we could just value life, respect life, and honor it because it's a gift from God. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much that we in this classroom are alive, that we have just your power, your life inside of us, that you, did, you died on the cross, but you rose again from the tomb. And we could just look at you and say, yes, Jesus, we welcome you into our lives. We welcome you into our hearts. And today, God, as we think about ethical situations, God, that you will just be the center of that. Your grace, your mercy, your light, and your justice will be the center of our minds as we're conversing and talking about ethical situations. And so we just praise you and thank you. We say that you have arisen. You have arisen indeed. And everyone said, amen. All right, everybody. Hope you found all the Easter eggs.